1: Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
0: We've actually gotten some really nice feedback which you know who whoever is used to that on the internet actual
2: nice feedback. <laughs> uh yeah i'm not that's for sure <laughs> i don't i don't know if you saw my most recent post you know yeah. the prime minister mentioned me in a speech and there's 400 comments to that post uh and and not all of them are good <laughs> no,
1: I would imagine that you're probably not having a great time on the internet right now. You're, you're, you're telling people things that maybe they don't want to hear.
0: Well, hold on. Okay, let's just do the, the formalities, if you will. <laughs> this is Angry Planet. I'm pretending to be Jason Fields. I'm Matthew.
2: And uh, John Spencer, explain who you are for, uh, to the uh, lovely people. I'm John Spencer. I'm the chair of Urban Warfare Studies at the Modern War Institute, which is a research center at the United States Military Academy. At West Point, Point.
0: and you wrote a very, very interesting piece for Newsweek, where um, uh, my day job apparently still lies. And uh, yeah, I thought it was really good. I, I it's not what people want to hear. So, can you sort of summarize uh, what it's about and what you sort of, what you've dis, you know discovered?
2: Sure. So, based on my actual visit to the war last month and studying it day to day. Of course, the narratives are out there, but I've found them surprisingly counterfactual. Everything from the war being the most destructive, the most deadliest, to Gaza being the most densest place on the earth. And then about this, really what Israel has done to prevent civilian casualties, because there is no such thing as a bloodless war. So I wrote this piece basically explaining not only did I think the IDF had implemented every measure I've ever seen in urban combat, like major urban battles, but also had implemented ones that no military has ever done in the history of war to include the United States military, or even myself in wars that I participated in, but in studying every major urban battle to include ones of the last 10 years, Israel has done things to prevent civilian casualties that no military has ever tried. Uh, But of course the news is that they're, everything from being indiscriminate to purposely trying to harm civilians, which is not true from my own research and observation. So what did you see of Gaza? What does Gaza actually look like? Um, I mean, you said it's not as dense as people make it uh, out to be. So I'd love to get you. Sure. Yeah. Um, so I'd been to the Gaza envelope, right? Um, many okay. times studying. I've actually studied the Israel, you know, the IDF's way to urban warfare and underground warfare for years. Multiple visits, and I was there last month. And I actually, for the first time, you know, the wording is important. Crossed into Gaza because I was taken to a very large tunnel that was discovered 400 meters outside the wall. So I, I was in a tunnel that Hamas built in Gaza, but it, you know, only 400 meters into the Gaza area. I've never been into the urban areas of Gaza like Gaza City, but. If you've ever been to the Gaza envelope, even in southern Israel, you can see Gaza. I mean, it's only a a few kilometers. So you can see all the urban areas, the high rises, everything um, from multiple points, just driving along southern Israel, which made watching the videos of of October 7th really hard because I had been to most of those locations. I'd had lunch in the cities. I'd been to many of those outposts. But interestingly, when the war started off. Unfortunately, the world and to include journalists were Googling Gaza and they were coming up with an article that says it's the most densest place on earth, which is pretty crazy if you've ever traveled the world and been to places like Mumbai, India or Cairo or <laughs> uh, like how is Gaza a city, you're, a area, not even a city that only I say only it's still it is dense, of course, but only contains about 2.2 million I mean Baghdad, where I was stationed, you know, has four million plus. Depending on what what statistic you, I fought a battle in the Battle of Sadr City um, in two thousand eight. That had that that neighborhood of Baghdad has two point two million plus people, and it's a it's like a really like a mile square kilometer area. But people want to use that we're Googling it, and like that's crazy. Even by metrics that us urban geeks use, like. Density is determined by how many people live in a single square kilometer. So if you're over 7,000 residents per square kilometer, we consider it dense. I mean, you can go to literally a, a slum in Mumbai called Davari has a million people in a single square kilometer. Like uh, this, even Gaza City is like 62nd on the world's most densest uh, Gaza itself, which is the myth, right? So, if you've never been to Gaza, that you think that Gaza, as in the entire area of Gaza, is one giant urban area, and it's not. So, even in Gaza City, it doesn't rank even in the top fifty, top sixty of the most densest places. So, it, it was kind of like like nails on a chalkboard when I was hearing it, especially in the beginning, and and I still hear like CNN will say one of the most densest places on Earth. Like, no, it's not. It's it's just not. <laughs>
1: <laughs> can I ask, a, can I get an origin story real quick? You called yourself an urban geek. Yes. Uh, how does one become an urban geek?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, as I've, I've called, an, I'm called an urbanista, uh, urban mafia, urban <laughs> studies, really. So the fact that I started academically studying urban when I was assigned to like a think tank for the, the top four star for the army in 2014. It's called the chief of staff of the army strategic studies group. And for a year, we looked at megacities. So cities of over 10 million people, there's, a, there's over 30 plus of them around the world. You know, think New York City to Dhaka. Uh, and for a year, we studied could a military operate in a megacity despite that density of 10 million plus people. And there are some areas like in the, in the Pearl or Ur- in, in Asia where megacities are, um, are growing into other megacities. So you have megalopesis that are you know tens of millions of people. But in 2014, I started studying it academically. I moved to West Point. I was teaching strategy and military tactics. I helped stand up a research center that I now work for. I still work for called the Modern War Institute. And in t- we started that in 2015, actually. And I wrote one article about the use of concrete walls in Iraq, and it went viral. I mean, like National Geographic carried it. It, it was crazy that people didn't know that That's how we controlled the violence in Baghdad for years was putting up concrete walls, making safe cities or making safe neighborhoods, basically, and then putting guards on the outside of those cities, which actually applies to what could happen in Gaza. But once that article went viral, I'm like, hey, nobody's writing about this. And since 2015, I've been writing and studying it. Uh, When I retired from the army in 2018, though, the modern war is like, hey, do you want to keep doing this? And I, so I became the urban studies guy. And unfortunately, which is pretty mind blowing, there's nobody in the world who is, who is paid and allowed or to only study urban combat. There's not a single office in the entire million person military that we have. There's not, there's not a single office in the Pentagon who, who is allowed to only focus on urban warfare. So I kind of fit a niche and I became the urban guy. That's really interesting. But you actually fought.
0: Uh, I mean, you, like you said, I mean, you helped put up walls and or you did put up walls. I mean, can I mean, this is such a terrible civilian question. OK, I, I know yeah. it is. But if you could talk a little bit about your experiences, what you saw and sort of the, maybe the advice or solutions you've come up with
2: sure so yeah i don't try to rely on my own experience but i i did so i i was a part of the 2003 invasion into iraq i jumped into northern iraq and we moved quickly south to areas in Kirkuk and in other areas um and i saw a lot of urban combat in, in those areas and in 2008 i returned as a company commander of an infantry company into Baghdad at the height of the, really the violence, a, a near civil war to include a, a major battle, the battle of Slaughter city. And I felt the, the challenges firsthand of urban combat. When you have a three dimensional terrain, you can't see, a, no matter what technology you had, you can't see around the block. It's really hard to identify where your forces are there. Um, that usually when you fight in wars, the enemies to your front, uh, because you're approaching them in the urban environment, they they're literally 360 degrees around you. They can be in any window, um, they can be underneath you. Uh, the complexities of the urban terrain are unlike any other environment, and I and that's again why I have job security. Is the fact that all the trends of warfare are that there are, it's moving into urban areas for multiple reasons to include non-state actors who can gain immense military capability from just embedding themselves into urban terrain. But the fact that it's also where the world is watching, right? Uh, Like we've seen in Gaza and Ukraine, everybody has a cell phone and everybody can upload what the war is happening because there's millions and millions of sensors in the urban environment, which you're not going to find like in the jungle or in the Arctic. You're just not a lot of people hanging out with cell phones.
0: Uh, Well, so how do you do this morally? I mean, that you're in an urban environment, that means that the people around you are by definition, some of them are going to be civilians and you're going to have babies. And I mean, you know, civilians are civilians. How do you do this morally? And I mean, it must be a challenge and a half, right?
2: Yeah. I mean, it's it's the worst, the worst situation you could ever put a military force um, who doesn't want to harm civilians. And I faced this firsthand where I had soldiers who accidentally uh, like, say they were breaching a door and there was a civilian, intermixed with the, the enemy. And it, it is heartbreaking um, at the personal level to see that. But I mean, the, what we're seeing today, like in in the the war uh, against Hamas in Gaza, is that it's the greatest test of a Western way of warfare, which is to follow the law of armed conflicts. You, you ask what's the, how do you do it morally. I mean, first you got to ask how you do it legally, um, because there are, once you enter the urban environment, more restrictions on the use of force. Like things you can't use, um, all the protected sites like hospitals, mosques, schools. So there's already a restriction on use of force. But you're right, there's a moral element, as in what are the values of the military who are fighting the war in the urban environment where there are so many innocent civilians because there's always civilians, no matter what you do to evacuate them. It's really challenging. But the, the number one way you do it is that you you have a moral principle that you do not kill or target really important that you don't target civilians or non-combatants really in the, in the military world, you say, of course there's you use the term innocent civilians, but it's really combatant or non-combatant because you can have civilians who within their own selves to decide to turn themselves into combatants, even though they're not part of the military. If they're, if they, Pick up a weapon, or if they pick up a cell phone and, and report, they they are starting to be a part of the hostilities. Then they're combatants, and unfortunately, can be targeted. So you start by training your military into morally into what their values are: is that we don't target non-combatants, we don't we don't attack civilians, and that gets drilled into you from the day you enter a military. If you're you know a, a military who follows a moral ethical code. So there are things you put in place to kind of control violence, right? The law of armed conflict is literally meant to just control the brutality of war. It isn't to say that war isn't about killing because war is about killing. War is destruction. But you put limits on the brutality of war, especially post-World War II when we said never again, not only meant never again a Holocaust and and, and genocides, but never again that we target civilians, like we did in World War II, trying to convince the military or the political people that we're facing to give up. So that gets incorporated in the law of armed conflict, but also in the rules of engagements in the military follows, which are additional to the laws. So that gets incorporated into this moral ethical code is like, we don't, we don't shoot, we don't target, we don't attack civilians. We don't shoot, we don't target uh, enemy who have given up. So like un ones who are, you know, basically you have to give quarter. It really gets incorporated into the moral fiber of your military. And I've seen that in not just the United States the military, but I've visited Ukraine four times since the war started. I've visited the IDF multiple times. It's really unique, actually, um, when you evaluate whether a military is being moral, ethical, where you have a complete opposites, and, and sometimes people like to talk opposites, like the Syrian military, like the Russian military, who morally, ethically have been grained into the fiber. As long as they're not us, we can kill them. And Russia has done crazy um, law of war violations and just things that, as a soldier, you would say, like, even if it wasn't a rule, this is just not moral. It's not It's not human to you know tie civilians' hands behind their back, kill them, to rape, to all, all those things that is a part of your, your value systems. Like we don't do that. And that's something that we talk about in the military a lot is like, that's not who we are. That's not what we do. I I just wondered how many militaries
0: are actually signed on to this. Um, and uh, you know, prominent examples and then prominent examples on the other side, you mentioned Russia. Yeah. They, they don't even try. They don't teach about the law of war at all.
2: I, I mean, um, I no, I, I've, I have some horror stories of, of learning about their professional military education, like what they yeah, do, okay. uh, how they brutalize their soldiers as a, as a way to indoctrinate them into their military. But no, nothing that I've seen, uh, especially in the Ukraine war, but you can go back to people forget about the, the war in Chechnya where Russia killed 5% of the entire population of Chechnya in their, in, in, in their 20 month long war, they killed, if you want to talk about civilian casualties i mean tens of thousands of a of a, of a small population five percent it's crazy but nothing i've seen of the russian military's history if you want to go back to the soviets as well shows that they have any type of moral code that fits to the law of armed conflict. they actually do war violations as a way of warfare and, and things that have done in ukraine and again because i have a, a I have a unique job. I've traveled the world into recent war zones from Nagorno-Karabakh to Ukraine, to Israel, um, you know, all around the India, all around the world, studying not just what happened. But like you said, are they even trying to follow the laws of war in Russia, Syria? Uh, not, not so much. Have you been to have you been to Syria? Did you visit? I did not. Don't no thanks. <laughs> That's when you skipped. Yeah. I skipped that one. Uh, it's, uh, yeah. Cause you know, I study, I also want to study major urban battles. So I don't want to go to Aleppo just maybe, maybe one day, but the civil war is still going on. I mean, it, it, it's not, it's not over.
1: Uh, I have a friend that's a, uh, a, a war correspondent and that was, that was early Syrian civil war was his last one. He was done after that. Um, he'd been in Iraq, Afghanistan uh, lots of places in Southeast Asia, seen a lot of really unpleasant things and Syria was the last he was like, I'm I'm not doing it anymore after
2: this. Yeah, it's like Sebastian Younger, who's a famous mm-hmm. war correspondent, who's like, I'm done, after he taught his friend and journalist he was with died in 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 uh, Libya, I think.
1: So walk me through the case that will probably make some listeners mad. Um and I may have some pushbacks here and there. Walk me through um the case for Israel being very careful with
2: civilians. Sure. And I tried to do that. I tried to give, I backed up some of the things I was saying with, with the evidence, right? Because for some reason, you know, social media has instantly created millions and millions of war experts, but from the history of basically urban combat, right? There's some standard practices, which are what we call uh, civilian harm mitigation. So, you know, things you do to prevent civilian casualties based on the mission, uh, and, and what the war, again, Gaza is not a battle, it's a war, but even in an urban battle, let's say it a city attack, which is really a great example. And I've studied a lot of city attacks actually, because they keep happening, whether it's from Kiev back to Stalingrad, if a military is attacking a city um, for different reasons, whether it's, there's a military inside of it, or it's the capital and the the center of gravity for the the Government in which you're trying to overthrow or or convince to stop fighting, so in a city attacks, sometimes um, you give no warning, so you basically enter the city, you attack, you try to take the political seat of government uh, you attack the military who's guarding the city, uh, like for instance uh, when we attacked into Afghanistan in, in two thousand and one into Baghdad in 2003, we gave no warning. Of course, we had an air campaign, but we did not do the other alternative, which is if you have the capability, you surround the city and then you evacuate the civilians, which is the standard practice of a major city battle, but uniquely shown history. You know, Russia didn't do that for the key battle. The United States didn't do it for multiple battles, uh, like the first battle of Fallujah in 2004. But there have been other battles like the second battle of Fallujah, the battle of Mosul, the, where you if you have the ability and based on the conditions on the ground, you surround the city if possible, although uniquely to a major urban area is not possible. But you still give the civilians warning and you tell them to evacuate like that's the biggest civilian harm mitigation you could ever do. Right. Tell telegraph to the enemy in the urban area that you're coming. So you allow the civilians to leave. In conjunction with that, you also do things like set up a route for them. You tell the civilians, look, we're coming, and which, tell again, gives you a military disadvantage, right? Because you tell the enemy in the city, hey, we're coming. Get ready. Uh, but that's what Israel did in Gaza, right? So we all know on October 7th to include 3,000 rockets uh, with the attack on Israel and rockets every day since until the, there's been a few days without rockets. But Israel waited about three to four weeks, depending on the timeline of where you say where the, the engagement started, but dropped thousands of flyers, uh, which is a standard practice. We did the same thing in the basically in the Battle of Masul and Fallujah, everything. Like everybody does this thing where they fly low flying hel- uh, airplanes and they drop millions of it's like the worst case of littering you'd ever see in your life, <laughs> uh, but drop millions of flyers over the area and they, telling the civilians. This is about to be a major combat area. Please leave and move to these areas usually is what the standard practice is. So Israel did that for Gaza City and for northern Gaza. Those are kind of like the standard practices. The other standard practices, you know, always before you start a battle or war, uh, a military will attack known military locations, bunkers, command and control centers, intelligence centers, um, air defense systems, things like that. You basically with long range uh, whether they're missiles or bombs or or artillery, you attack those sites, and then there are standard practices that you do to ensure that you make the right assessment on if if there's going to be civilian casualties. Not to say that you don't attack a site if there is civilians presence, but you there are standard practices that you do to observe so that we when you're making the decision because the laws of war require you to make a decision before you attack it, like is it required. Is it a military value? Are you striking a military site? Is it a military necessity? And then you make an assessment of proportionality of like, okay, based on what I'm about to hit, like it's a, it's a, it's a missile launching site and there's a missile about to be launched. Is it of enough value in what are the known civilians in the area that will become casualties or, or injured because of this, right? That, that kind of targeting protocol there are also standard practices that you use satellite imagery, uh, cell phone, cell phones that are in the area to make so you know what's there before you strike it. Again, Israel does that. And uniquely, and especially in the beginning of the war, Israel does things. OK, now we we'll start to get into things that no other military in the world does, is that if Israel has like a, let's say, a building in which the the bottom floor is all enemy, it will call everybody in that building to include the enemy saying, look, this, we're about to attack this building. I've never seen that in, a, in, a, in any war of the world where you call everybody in a building before you strike it. They also have this thing called roof knocking where they'll drop small um, explosives on the top of the building. Like they'll call everybody like, look, I'm serious. In about 10 minutes, we're going to attack this. You have 10 minutes to get out. And then they'll drop explosives. Now, they didn't do that a lot, but they did do it in the beginning of this war this practice called roof knocking, but they did do the, the targeting protocol, right? So you, there's what a standard practices. And then you, they're additional to what Israel does and nobody else does. And then as the, basically as for days and weeks, as Israel is calling for the evacuation of Northern Gaza, they have thousands of soldiers, which to me was, and I I didn't believe it until I went and visited on, on phones calling to people in the cities in which they know they're about to conduct operations, calling the imams, the the local leaders, the the business owners, and like trying to reach people on the phone and, and actually talking to them. Like, look, have you heard about the evacuations? We'd like you to leave. Um, so that's no military's ever done that in the history of war. And then they used an automated system to also launch robocalls. So basically, pre-scripted messages, and they, like two million of those two cell phones in the areas in which the operation is about to come. No military has ever done that. So that's what they did as part of the evacuation. Although evacuations are standard, creating a safe route, telling them where to go. That's all standard. Well, lastly, as again, we can talk about how Hamas's strategy is to create as many civilian casualties as possible. So that, that adds to the complexity of it to include shooting civilians who are trying to leave to include ordering civilians back into areas that have already been cleared. Hamas was doing that. As the war continued, uh, once Hamas' intelligence was driving operations, especially in southern, you know, there's basically a a river. It's a dry creek bed, actually, a river that bisects northern and southern Gaza. When the IDF started to move on southern Gaza, they they did something that I've never seen. And actually really surprised me as an urban guy is that they started – issuing out the IDF maps. So all militaries have these things called control measures. To include, we'll, we'll number every building in a city and we'll draw, we'll, we'll cut a urban area up into small pieces of pies and then name those areas like, okay, this is zone 21 to, through 1000. And we'll create a map and we'll hand that map out to all of our forces so that we all can communicate. Like, look, Alpha Team or you know, uh, whatever company's in zone 20 today. Well, the IDF decided to give that map to all the civilians and Hamas. So that way on a daily basis, they could tell the civilians and the enemy they're fighting. Look today, area 20 will be the focus of our operation. If you're, you, you really should be out of this area. uh, It's going to be a high combat area. And then lastly, uh, I'm sorry, I'm going so long. There's just a lot of measures they've taken. Is that um, soon after the Northern fight started uh, the IDF started doing daily pauses in the fighting. So four-hour pauses as they saw a need to increase the civilian harm mitigation, as in to get more civilians who hadn't heeded the calls to evacuate from the flyers, from the text messages, from the phone calls. So they, they started telegraphing that they would do daily four-hour pauses to the enemy and to the civilians so that more civilians get, could get out of areas where the troops were already there. So that's that's you asking me as a company commander on the ground, like, hey, for the next four hours, no fighting. And there's going to be civilians walking towards you into your combat areas. And and as so the complexity of that is that Hamas does not wear a uniform. So the, that's the challenge of the guy on the ground is that at any moment, somebody who's dressed in civilians could attack them. But they would do these four-hour pauses in which civilians were – Told that hey, and again through Texas and through phone calls. Tomorrow, wait for a call. There'll be a four-hour pause in the fighting. We will not be fighting, and you can move along this route to your area. Again, that that has not happened in recent urban battles. Where in the battle of Massoul, there were a couple pauses, like two-week pauses, because the IDF were losing thousands of soldiers. Because the IDF, not the IDF, the the Iraqi security forces in the battle of Mosul were losing thousands of soldiers. So they did a couple two week pauses because they were losing thousands of soldiers. But this daily pauses, there have been pauses in wars. Again, um, that's kind of a standard practice, but I've never seen them do a daily pause, which actually would telegraph to your enemy. Like, Hey, you know, tomorrow we're going to have a four hour pause so we can reinforce and move around without anybody attacking us. So those are some of the things that, were the standard practices, but also more measures than any military in the history of war have taken to prevent civilian casualties, despite the all the mass media headlines of most destructive, most you know intentional all of this that aren't just factual.
0: So I have two questions from that. But, sure. Um, first is there are days on their media reports that there are blackouts of communications in gaza so if that's happening how do you get warnings to people are they still doing
1: that or what cell service is notoriously awful in gaza and was before uh the war started
2: yep no it's been a great question i i watched as the idf spokesman would get that call um so in some areas of course they would targeted internet outlet you know which is standard practice too to cut the enemy off from being able to communicate to itself so, um it wasn't all areas and they would implement so it's not like they would just just use a single service so they would increase the number of flyers being dropped they would um again once they had those maps out they could target those blackouts and yes they would they would do multi-day blackouts but it's not like they purposely cut all communication and then said they were signaling people to get out. It it just wasn't how I was working on the ground, but that's actually a standard practice as well. But interestingly, they had that ability to turn it off, turn it off. And they can tell you again, like even when they went to the mapper, they could tell you what cell phones were on and working in a very specific area. We had that, you know, you would literally
1: like power up the tower Yes. call everyone inside, and then power yes. the tower back down.
2: Um, I'm not saying that's what they do. I'm saying they had that possibility. I'm saying they were using okay. everything from you know social media to um, telegrams, all these different ways to do everything they could to reach as many civilians as possible while also p- moving forward on the military operation. And so if I'm the commander on the ground, I would want, even for um, IED threat, defeat, you know, because some – IEDs, improvised explosive devices, are are, you know, are activated by cell service. So you want to cut, depending on where you're at and what you're doing, you do want to cut all communication off. One thing that I hope we talk about is the again the news media line of the number of precision guided munitions versus unguided or dumb bombs. Hopefully we can talk about that. But one of the yeah. measures in that, was somebody criticized me for putting in my article in Newsweek is about dive bombing. So dive bombing is something if you have air supremacy, which not just air superiority, but air supremacy. Like there is no air defense in the environment. There's no threat to the air. You have the ability to um, drop a bomb going straight down. Like the the, the plane is actually literally diving down and increasing the accuracy of the bomb, which are normally accurate anyways, um, if it's not precision guided by GPS or anything. And the IDF implemented dive bombing because they have complete air supremacy over Gaza. If you did not have air supremacy, you would not have that capability. You would have to drop uh, at a much higher level of of flight path and at a you know not diving down because of the threat of air defenses. So I forgot to mention that, but that's another kind of practice if available to you that you do to increase your accuracy, decrease civilian harm. Uh, yeah, that leads also to the whole question about
0: precision guided munitions and, yes. you know, uh, what that even means in some cases. Uh, yes, but 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 if I, I just don't want to forget this one, um, does this actually by doing all these warnings and whatever does it prolong the war? And if you prolong the war, is that not worse for civilians?
2: Yes, absolutely. So that's a great question. As Again, people want to criticize rather than analyze the war in Gaza. The amount of the pace that the IDF have cleared dense urban contested terrain is, is actually historic as well. But absolutely, it increases the time. Like like I said, even the practice of waiting for civilians to evacuate versus rushing into an urban area, which is not atypical or a historical either, depending on what the military objective is and. So there's this there's this question legally, like what are you required to do, and what should you do, which gets you into that moral aspect of it and and all the steps you're taking in addition to the requirements of law of war, so yes, it does, but you also can't talk about Gaza without actually not only talking about the time it t- it takes you to- to do the operation will increase potentially the civilian harm and the destruction. The enemy gets a vote, right? Really, the amount of time it takes, the amount of destruction it takes, the amount of bombs it takes is dependent on the enemy situation, on whether the enemy is resisting at all. Cause there are historical battles where you just signal that you're coming and ask the enemy to leave. It, you know, it's just, all the way back to Sun Tzu. It's called the golden gate. You give them an opening. Uh, or if you psychologically tell them to give up anyways, but you can't talk about. All the things that the IDF have done in Gaza without discussing the time variable to the hostages, since there's 200 plus hostages and usually the more time that hostages held, the less likelihood that you're going to get them back alive. Yeah, I think they're down to 100 uh, now is what right. I was reading most recently. Right. Yeah. Um, as we're talking, um, the rockets. So the fact that the rockets never stopped, even during that three week period of time when when the IDF were giving time for civilians to move out of the main initial combat areas Thousands of rockets from Hamas, which 10% of them land inside of Gaza, by the way, uh, being launched at Israel's civilian area. So I've never seen a military. I, again, I can give you some analogies of like the, the fact of hostages in the environment. So like in the Battle of Manila, there were thousands of American prisoners in the environment as you were trying to liberate Manila. But where you have the hostages and you have rockets over your head of your military doing the city attack. Launched at their civilian site, which, like you said, all this gets into how long is it going to take? The longer it takes, the more destruction, the more risk are involved risk to hostages, risk to the civilians. um, As you get into like the humanitarian concerns as well, Uh, all of this is unique to this war that is um, people are failing to recognize, but to include the steps that the IDF have taken despite the media.
1: All right, Angry Planet listeners want to pause there for a break. We'll be right back after this.
0: A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some
2: states. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com.
1: All right, welcome back, Angry Planet Listeners. Jason, Precision Guided Munitions. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, God, there are
0: too many good questions, actually. Yeah. Um, all right, I'll move on to that, because I was going to ask, like, if you sure. let people, like, civilians go through, how do you know who's a civilian and who isn't?
2: Uh, well, I, think I let's mean, answer, people
1: aren't always uniform. I think the answer to that one, right? And then
2: we'll do precision-guided yeah. munitions. So, absolutely. It's a great question. And, and in, in the initial phase, there's no way to tell. And this is what happened, right? So you had – you telegraphed where you're going, and you had Hamas say, okay, I'm going to move my battalions, because you can't, again, compare – This war to other wars, if if you don't even start by saying, okay, how many enemy are in the environment? Like the Battle of Mosul, the U.S. Army said there were 3,000 to 5,000 ISIS fighters in that city that took nine months to clear of just that three to 5,000 fighters. In Gaza, there are 30,000 Hamas fighters, 30 battalions. And yes, when the IDF signaled that where they're going to start, northern Gaza, I can guarantee you, because it's a fact, that tens – Let's say 10,000 Hamas said, Oh, okay, you 10 battalions, you got the northern Gaza, I'm going to move. And and the leadership and everybody else moved out of the areas which the IDF are telegraphing to prevent civilian harm. We're going to start. I mean, they still did a couple surprises that even surprised me on how they approached um, the environment or or the areas. But yes, they, they leave. That was the question, right? Yeah, how do you? Oh, later. Um, that You can do things by, by establishing checkpoints and searching the people that are leaving, which is also standard practice as well. And I, I think it's pretty much open source too, but you can even implement like facial recognition. And it's not like the IDF don't know who many of the Hamas are, not all of them. And in the urban environment, one of the, the really the, the, the strongest way, even when everybody's wearing civilians to determine who the enemy is, is when they start shooting at you.
0: All right. Fair. Um, now, should we get to precision guided munitions? All right. Um, I'm curious about a number of things, but just to describe what they are right now, I just want to say that I was listening to NPR this morning and they were talking about um, a, militia, a militia leader who was behind uh, some of the attacks against U.S. troops. Uh, maybe I think in Jordan, um, they used a hellfire missile to kill this guy in a car. And it didn't even have a warhead on it. It's a kinetic yep. missile. Yep. Um. So
1: that was oh, be... the knife
2: missile. Yeah, Shinzu, right? Like a Shinzu knife.
1: Yeah, where yep. it, it strikes, and then the 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 blades pop off of it. Correct.
2: Yeah, it's it's the same so, one we used on Sulmani, uh Same one that uh, we believe was used even in uh, Damascus to, to eliminate a Hamas leader. So that. Is sort of, in a way, the ultimate in precision-guided
0: munition. You're not, you're not even creating an explosion around the vehicle. You Correct. are really just getting the people around you. Sure, Okay. But this seems like the whole thing is weird, honestly, yep. because as in everything in war, you're trying to kill people. It's yep. really a matter of who you're trying to kill. I mean, you're trying to meet military objectives, actually, rather than you're not trying to kill people. But in order to get to where you need to go that's the whole point it's called war so do you have uh, any idea about when this concept came to be and how they're used now um uh, does this does my question make sense
2: yeah it does i mean i i so i'm not a, a weapons expert although i've studied the use of weapons in urban combat extensively Um, The use of precision guided munitions, which people usually use, they don't even know what they're talking about, is when the bomb, the missile, whatever, has a technology on it that is usually GPS and it can guide the munition onto the target to a very high probability uh, uh, of where it's hitting. So there's this thing called circular probability of error, right? So basically when you drop a missile or a bomb or something like that, there's there's kind of rings around it on which okay i know it'll it'll land in this ring of 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 and then as you go out there the, the the probability of error based on weather based on the flight path on, on on thousands of variables but once the use of these things called gps whether it's something on the cone of the missile or the bomb or or a kit you put on top of it it can be it increases the the likelihood that it'll hit like within one to five meters, which is just insane, right? Uh, that level of accuracy dropping something from 50,000 feet and it's going to hit something within three meters, five meters of the ground. That started really in a popular, let's say open source, in the Persian Gulf War, right? Um, in our our attack of Saddam Hussein's, we dropped 250,000 missiles and bombs. And of those 250,000, really about 2% of those were precision guided, as in they had the technology on them, the rest would be considered non-guided. I don't like to call them dumb, but some people want to go there and call them dumb munitions because they don't have that. But they're actually, whether it's a mortar round, an artillery round or a missile, if you know anything about the military, they actually hit what they're shooting at is just a sort of higher probability that it may be five meters to 50 meters off. A standard artillery round is usually around 50 meters Of accuracy. If you want to talk about the use of artillery in urban warfare, it's it's I mean, it's vital, it's tens of thousands of rounds usually per day of artillery and it has a high, but everybody got focused on in the news because the US intelligence source quoted the number of bombs dropped in Gaza and said over fifty percent of them are dumb. Which means fifty percent of let's say twenty thousand bombs were unguided. As they didn't have that precision-guided technology on them, and for some reason, because people don't are just ignorant to war, they're like, "That's massive! That that's a huge number of unguided. That means they're just they're just carpet bombing Gaza, right?" No, actually, it doesn't mean that at all. It just means that of the all the bombs and missiles, that percentage didn't have that guided system, so it didn't hit within five meters. It might have. But there's a probability it could have it might hit. have. That's such a great line. <laughs> yeah, it might have. But again, because this circular probable error means that when you drop a bomb or missile, you are hitting what you're shooting at, which makes it discriminate, not indiscriminate. Because we actually have carpet bomb cities in history, right? Yeah. And, and I think it was, I don't know, Senator Sanders who said that, you know, it's like Dresden and Gaza, like Well, that's ignorant because in Dresden, it was unguided. It was literally carpet bombing where you just fly over the city and hit anything. And there were 25,000. But he also fails to mention the US firebombing of Tokyo, where we literally just firebombed the city and we killed 80 to 100,000 in a single night. We killed 300,000 bombing Tokyo, more than Nagasaki, Hiroshima, and Dresden put together, but separate. Unguided does not mean indiscriminate and not hitting what it's shooting at. it just means there's there's it could hit anywhere from ten to fifty meters off of that target, but it could not. It could actually hit one meter on it as well. So that's where the news ran with this. So the ideal here though is that like so fine, I, I took you back to the Persian Gulf, which is thirty years ago. and in some operations like the Bosnia war, the Bosnia war, based on the context of the enemy, the targets. And the available munitions, we had like an 80 to 90% precision-guided munition. But there's never been an urban war where it's been the idea that you're only going to fight the war with precision-guided munitions is also inaccurate. It's ignorant. Um, in the Battle of Mosul, like you mentioned, hellfires that was used in this counter-terror operation, which is very typical as well. And he's on the street. In the Battle of Mosul, the U.S. military fired so many precision-guided munitions. So many hellfires that we ran out of our strategic stockpile. Like the factory could not produce more. Because if you're going to criticize the military's use of precision-guided munitions versus non, well, you have to have an awareness of what they have, right? Because no military has enough munitions to fight an urban battle with only. And here's the, oh, by the way, is yes, I can use a a. a non-explosive, really a knife flying in through the air to attack a guy in a car. But if I'm firing at something that's 20 meters underground in a tunnel, then a hellfire is not going to do anything for me. And actually, even if you have a hellfire and you're talking about somebody's inside of a concrete building, this is what happened in Mosul, is all I have to do is I just move from one building to the next and I call what's called the precision paradox. So you believe that you have precision-guided munitions and that's the only thing you're going to attack the enemy with. And you're going to cause less damage. Not true. It's actually the, the, the reverse. So you're going to enter close combat. And yes, you're going to be able to attack every building within one meter of precision. But he's just going to move to the next building. So you're going to, you're going to attack and destroy every building on that block with your precise munitions. Uh, even though we're not even going to talk about artillery and, and mortars. It's just a fallacy to believe that you could fight an urban battle with only precision-guided munitions. Now, you also want to talk about the news is reporting of 2,000-pound bombs, right? Because somebody's gone and taken all the number of 2,000-pound bombs. And like, look, they they could have used something other than a 2,000-pound bomb. They could have used a 500-pound bomb and caused less damage. Okay, what was the target they were shooting at? Since we know there are 450 miles of tunnels in Gaza, ranging from 15 feet to 300 plus feet and at that level at 300 feet you really get below the level of a modern munition could reach uh there are ways you get deeper but most even we dropped a 30,000 pound bomb in the invasion of iraq on on a bunker in taji airport base a 30,000 pound bomb to get to it but to say that you could use a 500 pound bomb instead of a 2,000 pound bomb like well what was he shooting at was he shooting at a a underground tunnel because we know there's lots of them. But it's crazy when somebody will report that they've dropped a historic level of 2,000-pound bombs. Oh, okay. But, well, maybe because they're fighting in a war where it has more tunnels than any military has ever faced in a battle. Because even if you talk about the Vietnam War, there was only about 60 miles of tunnels to include in Coochie and other places where the Americans faced a lot of tunnels or maybe 130 miles. But not... 450 miles i've got some listener questions about tunnels
1: actually let's do it uh jason unless you've got something else you want to jump on
0: i i was just going to point out that precision guided munitions probably were created so that you'd hit things more accurately rather than save civilians but
2: but it's nice yeah, that they do exactly but it is a standard practice um yeah but again you have to talk about availability of munitions as well right so uh, people also talk about Gaza without talking about northern Israel, right? The fact that Hezbollah has attacked Israel since October 7th, and it's, it's a total different military threat. But somebody said, well, you should use all your precision. Every round that you fire into Gaza should be precision-guided munitions. Like, well, What about the threat to my north that, where there's 100,000 civilians that had to get evacuated because there's tens of thousands of Hezbollah fighters about to invade? Yeah, yeah, but we'll get you precision guided munitions from somewhere else. Do you know what the the number the first request from Israel to the United States was on October eighth? Mm, no, it was it was a, a military request for uh, Iron Dome interceptor missiles that we have and JDAM kits. On October 8th, they asked for JDAM kits, which are the kits you put on top of unguided munitions to make them precision-guided munitions, like 500-pound bombs or 2,000-pound bombs, so that you hit exactly where you're aiming at. Listener
1: questions. I think you're going to like these. What are the most important factors that make tunnel and urban warfare different from other forms of warfare? How does this change the decisions made by senior leaders?
2: So it really gets to – so that on that question, Well, what makes tunnels different in urban environments than, let's say, tunnels in other environments, right? If you even talk about like the uh, the historic Battle of Iwo Jima, I mean, they they were in bunkers and tunnels, but they, they – Hamas built their tunnels unique, again, to Hamas because, you know, North Korea has thousands of miles of tunnels. China, thousands of miles of tunnels. But in the urban environment, again, because once you enter the urban environment, there's already restrictions on the use of force. So I can't drop a 300,000 pound bomb or a 30,000 pound bomb or the Moab, the mother of all bombs that we dropped in Afghanistan on a tunnel complex, uh, which was the the biggest drop of basically munitions since the uh, nuclear bomb. But in an urban environment is you have to do the proportionality assessment saying, okay, you're targeting this enemy tunnel, but it's underneath all this civilian infrastructure and civilian areas. So that makes it, extensively harder to hit the enemy that you're shooting at. And this is why even I recommend to somebody, if you're defending urban terrain, you better start digging because tunnels do keep you protected, keep you from being able to be seen because the military wants, all militaries want to attack the enemy they're fighting as far away as possible. And that's why people go in there. You know, a weaker enemy goes into an urban area. It's because they immediately can hide themselves immediately can stay protected. And if there's tunnels then you can go into the tunnel and it's really hard for the other side to hit you. But unique to Hamas, Hamas's tunnels are only under civilian areas and are under even protected sites like hospitals, mosques, schools, which they hoped it's illegal. It's called lawfare where you want to use the rules of war against the person who is attacking you. So you, 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 cause the protections of all the civilians and their, their, their places to be lost because you're putting your military infrastructure underneath them. I mean, there's, there's a whole list of um, challenges of fighting tunnels or, or especially in urban areas where, you know, like I said, there's 360 degree threats all around you in an urban environment, but you have to look down as well. I mean, there's tunnel bombs in in warfare where you, they actually just pack explosives underneath you. And as soon as you walk on top of it, they explode it. So many threats, but these tunnels, I think people are trying to discount. They're so unique to this war and the challenge that it causes you to try to. So the question you asked though, really has to beg more questions like, okay, what's, what's the mission? Is the mission to kill the enemy? Is the mission to take the city? Is the mission even to just contain the enemy in that environment? And the tunnels will factor into that. I tried to show people like even in the Ukraine war, the tunnels were the subways of like Kiev were never meant to be used for military purposes. But of the 3 million population that was surprised that the Russians were attacking their city, they immediately all went into the metro tunnels to stay protected and it protected them. And most people discount that as well as that of the hundreds of miles of tunnels in Gaza, it would fit every single civilian in Gaza, two point two million people could fit in every could fit underground, and if Hamas wanted them to, but Hamas doesn't let a single civilian into their tunnels because they stated that that's somebody else's responsibility. How do the laws of armed
1: conflict factor into tunnel warfare,
2: especially around the use of gas? Interesting question. Uh, so I have actually written a tear gas, which is a is a gas, although it can it's I. Not ironic. I know why. But tear gas can be used against almost every civilian population of the world, right? A riot control agent, the police can use it at will, and they do, uh, from pepper sprayed. But it can't be used in war as a form of warfare, as a method of warfare. And many of the reasons of for that is because we use them in tunnels in Vietnam. We would pump tear gas in with generators. We would literally bring generators and tubing and pump it into the tunnel instead of going into it. But um, we also it, it became a big debate in the Senate and everything, and we signed this riot control agent prohib- prohibition. So basically, saying that we won't unless the president authorizes it, use tear gas in war. The laws of war again uh, are very are, are actually pretty clear on UK. You can't you can't target civilians. You have to assess the military value, the necessity, the proportionality. And that applies in a tunnel as well. Like you have to assess the proportionality of attacking a tunnel at, to the military value you gain and the foreseeable likely damage it will cause to civilian populations or their infrastructure. And you have to take precautions to prevent that. But when you have a tunnel system like this woven into the civilian environment, you can see how that complicates executing the use of force, but adhering to the law of armed conflict. And Israel, again, has done some really innovative things to clear tunnels because there, there's this thing about destroying tunnels versus clearing tunnels. But on gas, although I've seen tear gas used even in recent wars, like in the Battle of Mawari 2017, it's a really effective way to clear a building without destroying it if the other side doesn't have gas masks. But I know why we don't use it. and why like Israel would never use it because you can imagine the headline Israel uses gas in tunnels and what that would do globally just from that, that, that title. So it has historically been very useful in clearing tunnels. We no longer do it. Uh, And I, I agree. It's a good thing because it's a slippery slope. Well, if you use tear gas, what else are you going to use? And and nobody wants that. Do we have any more uh, listener questions or?
1: I got one I feel like we could probably do an entire episode about uh, and then one that'll see us out. So the, the one <laughs> I think we should we do the whole episode later. <laughs> um, quality infrastructure is defensible infrastructure. How does build quality plan versus as built and most importantly, maintenance figure into war planning? Does it?
2: So, that's a good one as well. Yes, of course, the building construction of infrastructure, and why, in major urban battles, there's always a massive fight in the industrial areas of cities because they're built strong, and there's long lines of sight where you can you can shoot your weapon systems that are normally, you know constricted, legend, we don't really have a lot of concrete penetrating direct fired munitions. And you see a lot of in war, you see people bringing up artillery to direct fire artillery, which is unique to urban battles, into buildings so they could eliminate the build, the enemy in that very strong building. So absolutely building construction factors into the way the character of the battle is going to happen. If they're in really reinforced uh, steel, reinforced, poured concrete, it, that building is going to take a lot of damage, uh, even like the Battle of Stalingrad where most of the buildings were left standing but the roofs were off. So uh, it, it really factors into how and how it's maintained as a building, but the question is unique because it says infrastructure, which a military will factor in in its in its in its plans, especially targeting where it will preserve infrastructure. Everything from like even knocking out the power, which a standard practice is no longer attacking the power as in just blowing it up, but maybe you can just use a different type of ammunition and cut the power lines, which was done like in the invasions of Iraq. Uh, so that infrastructure question factors into it because you are literally trying to protect infrastructure, but if it's be- being used for military value, how do I achieve the military mission with the least amount of damage? But if the city is made of ironclad buildings, you're going to see a much different fight Different types of munitions used and a lot of different t- destruction happening. And hmm. actually, we should also mention Azovstal, which I'm not. Oh.
0: You know, I mean,
2: yeah, no, I have an article coming out really soon uh, in Time Magazine about the the Azovstal fight and how they flew helicopters in to reinforce it and and hold how three thousand fight. I mean, it's really like a story of like the three hundred in Thermopylae or the Alamo, where just a few a few brave men and women hold off so in that case in Agestalt in, in an industrial area very heavily built with some underground 3,000 fighters held off 20,000 Russians for weeks and those those Russians weren't able to go fight somewhere else so it's just an amazing story but that's another episode as well yeah yeah well we'll look forward to that reading
1: it I mean definitely and right, I got one more we, you kind of answered it at the beginning but I think it's a good one to re-highlight and go out on Okay. Um, given that they are the two most high-profile urban warfare actors of recent years, how does Israel? How does Israeli urban warfare doctrine compare to Russian urban warfare doctrine?
2: Yeah, no, it's uh, a good question. Uh, one follows the law of war; one does not. The Israel um, way of warfare is, is basically um, to follow the law of armed conflict, but also leave with very mechanized forces like bulldozers and tanks with active protection systems Russian doctrine uh, there's a question of whether they follow it is to lead with artillery rounds and not just precision again the, the dumb round like they do literally artillery barrages which could be called carpet bombing which is also just given to aerial aerial bombardments but the the russian military is an artillery based military they lead with a barrage of artillery to destroy everything in their path and then they follow with armor and infantry uh so it is is literally an indiscriminate methodology of urban warfare because they're leading with bombs no matter what's in front of them to protect their forces and in what they did in the one of the battles of Grozny was exactly that. They they, they lost soldiers, so they decided, well, we're just going to level the whole thing, no matter what, to military, military target or not. And and that's what they did, and they killed tens of thousands of civilians in doing it. But that's the giant difference between the two, is one follows the law of war, one doesn't.
0: I think this is amazing. You gave us a lot of your time, and uh, I feel like I understand this better. Some as Matthew said, of our listeners are going to say, "This is bullshit," and the Israeli army is the worst in the world. Um, we can't help that. We can only, re- you know, talk to the people who are in front of us. And this guy seems pretty smart, so we'll talk to him. John Spencer, thank you so much for coming on with us.
2: Thank you. <laughs>